Well, good morning, church. It is good to gather again to hear the announcement of the gospel, to join our our voices together and singing in unison and to also open God's word and to hear it, to hear it preached and to have it spoken over us. So if you haven't already, uh, would you turn in your copy of God's word this morning to the gospel of Matthew? We'll be looking at the last few verses of this gospel, considering Christ's commission to the church one of the most important and relevant passages that we could give to consideration as a church together. And as we begin to consider this, would you join in praying with me, asking for the Spirit's help as we spend time in the the scriptures this morning. God and our Father, we look to you this morning, coming to you in the name of the great mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Lord, we rejoice to hear and to remind ourselves that he is the great shepherd of the sheep, that he is the overseer of our souls, that he is the firstborn from the dead, that he is the head of the body, his church. Lord, we rejoice to hear that he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet that brings to us your word, the living word, that speaks to our lives, that calls us out of darkness and into marvelous light, that rebukes us, corrects us, comforts us, assures us, that he is our great high priest that represents us before you, bearing ourselves up before you as our intermediary, the one presenting himself on our behalf, to remind ourselves that he is our great king, the one who has conquered us, subdued us, and won us to yourself, and who defends us against all ours and your enemies until the day that he returns. Lord, it is to him that we look and him that we long to be glorified and recognized in our lives and in this church. And so we ask that you would help us by your word to see Christ as he is, to hear his word, And Lord, by your spirit, you would cause his word to resonate within our souls, that it might change us, that it might transform us, Lord, that it might grow up and bear fruit in our lives, that your church might be strengthened, and that your name might be glorified. We ask that you would do this here by your good will and by your good spirit, in Christ's name, amen. The text here before us is Matthew 28. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Well, I think there are those moments in life when we all inevitably ask ourselves, what am I doing here? There are those certain moments that we assume we ought to be doing something, but I'm not quite sure what that is. And it is a valid question because no one wants to be just wandering around aimlessly without any sense of direction. Maybe you've said this to yourself after scrolling through your phone after you've lost track of time and said, what am I doing here? 
Or maybe you've even walked into a room and the moment you get into the room, you forget why you came there and so you say, what, what am I doing here? Or sometimes we say this to ourselves as we sit down to tackle a term paper or to finish a project or to open the garage door in an attempt to organize it and say, what am I doing here? It is a legitimate and often asked question. But fortunately, when we come to the question of Christianity and when we come to the purpose of the church, we are not left to wonder. There is no reason that any Christian with an open Bible should be in the dark when it comes to answering the what are we doing here question. Jesus has been tremendously clear. He has given his church a direct charge and a very straightforward command. Go make disciples. This is the mission statement of the church. And this mission statement is not the result of some marketing test group that found that this polled really well in the demographic of 25 to 65, nor is this the invention or the great experiment of the artsy creative folk who said this will really resonate with people today. This right here is the command of Christ our captain given to his church with which he is purchased with his own blood. Go make disciples. Now, in hearing that and reading that as we just did, you might argue that this great commission really isn't that great. Now, it certainly is in the sense of its scope, how broad it is, and its significance and what we're calling people to, but what Christ calls his church to, we must be honest, is quite ordinary. It is, at least, it ought to be quite ordinary. What Jesus is after here ought to be the general practice of every Christian in every church in every age. In that sense, it is quite common. It ought to be quite familiar. And so what I'm saying is that what we're laying out here this morning and what we're considering, it's not unique to us as a church. It's not as if some church could uniquely say, hey, this is our mission statement. Nobody else has figured this one out, but this is what we're doing. No, every biblically faithful church really ultimately at the end of the day ought to have the same mission statement. Go make disciples. And according to what Jesus teaches here, it is impossible to be a follower of Christ without helping others follow after Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Likewise, what this means, if we seek to be the people of God, a church that honors and follows Jesus, then we will be those who are collectively helping one another follow after Christ. And so if we're going to ask the question, what ought Veritas Church set out to be doing? Well, at some point, we must open to our Bibles and point to this. We'll make disciples. What I want us to see this morning is while this sounds very ordinary, and oftentimes will look very ordinary, 
It is propelled forward by the greatest news, and it culminates in the greatest event that we could ever imagine. And so what I want us to do is just recognize and think along these lines in regards to this great commission that we, number one, go in his authority, that we go to make disciples, and that we go with Christ. Let's consider these three elements as we consider this charge that's given to us and to all of Christ's church. He says, first of all, in verse 18, we go in his authority. If you notice, this command to make disciples, it's prefaced by one word, therefore. And that means that our reason, our emphasis, our motivation for making disciples It lies in what was just said in verse 19, excuse me, verse 18. It is the issue of authority. Now, authority is not new to Matthew and his gospel. It's not as if he just slips this in in the last few verses saying, by the way, Christ has authority. What you'll find is if you read through the gospel of Matthew, this issue of authority is one of the major threads that ties all of this together. If you remember back in chapter 8, just after Jesus finishes preaching and teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we are told that they were in awe as he taught with authority. Later in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 9, we read that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Chapter 16 and chapter 18 deal very critically with the authority of Christ and his church. And then here in chapter 28, Jesus declares that he has the authority to send his church. So if we're going to understand the role of the church and our role within his church, we must be clear, first and foremost, on the authority of Jesus. Remember what we're told in Scripture. Very specifically, that Jesus has authority over all powers in all ages. We remind ourselves of this in the opening chapter of Ephesians, when Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. We also remind ourselves that as we look around at other human beings, other image bearers of God, that Christ also has authority over all people. That magnificent passage in Philippians 2, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ has authority over all powers, all principalities, over all time, and over every man, every woman, every image bearer of God. Christ is above. The authority of Christ is extremely relevant as we consider our charge to make disciples because it helps us if we're going to answer one very pressing 
and relevant question, which is this. Who gives us the right to make disciples? That is a question that is being raised with more and more frequency in the age and the culture that we live in. And it's a legitimate question. Don't dismiss it. Who gives you the right to assume that you can make disciples of every nation? Have you thought about this before? The issue of Christ's authority is so central and so important if we are going to answer that question well. Keep in mind a couple of things. You and I know that we live in a culture that is increasingly saying, not just keep your beliefs to yourself. Not even just your Christianity can be private, but not public. It seems that we are entering a season and a culture and a day and an age to where the very fact that you would hold to such a belief puts you in great suspect. So who would give you the right to say that you could impose your beliefs on other people? Well, we must be clear on this issue of authority. A couple of things to hold in our hands and keep in mind. First of all, we need to understand that the substance of what we believe as Christians is not subjective preference, but facts. Christ died or he didn't. Christ rose from the grave or he did not. He ascended or he did not. These facts are not just ours, like this is my truth that I'm going to share with you in the sense that they are some subjective thing or just some personal experience that have happened to us. We call others to repent and to believe, to follow after Jesus precisely because of who God is and what he has done, what he's accomplished, and what he's commanded. In that sense, it's not just a preference. Like, I like chocolate. Maybe you like vanilla. I'm going to tell you why chocolate is better. That's not the category of discussion that we're having because it's not subjective preference. And thirdly, this means then that preaching and evangelism and our discipleship, we're not imposing anything because we can't. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. What we are doing is we are declaring, we're announcing, we are proclaiming. So then disciples of Christ, we could say, are sent as ambassadors, as representatives of the king because it's in his name that we speak. It's his authority that we announce. It's because of his victory that we command and declare all men everywhere must repent. It is because of Christ's authority that we go, that we make disciples. And what I'm getting at is that if we do not begin with the authority of Christ, what will happen is eventually we will veer off into these dangerous shoals of pragmatism or emotionalism or just pluralism. Unless we hold fast to the authority of Christ, eventually any sense of go and make disciples will erode away in the face of any sort of opposition. Listen to what John Stott 
wrote about when he talks about Christ having authority in heaven and earth. Listen to how he thinks about this and ties this together. This is the fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. If the authority of Jesus were restricted to earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations, then we would have no mandate to present him to the nations as the Lord and Savior of the world. And if the authority of Jesus were limited in heaven, if he had not decisively overthrown the principalities and powers, we might still proclaim him to the nations, but we would never be able to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Only because of all authority on earth belongs to Christ, dare we go to all the nations. And only because all authority in heaven as well is his, is his, have we any hope of success. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what Christ has accomplished, the church finds her confidence in her mission. All authority. We go in the authority of Christ. But secondly, verse 19, we go to make disciples of all nations. Look back at your your scriptures. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, as you hear those words, perhaps you hear an echo of another passage within scripture, a very foundational and central passage to the redemptive arc of God's plan of salvation. Perhaps you hear the echo of Genesis 12, 3. Our Lord's word to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, in Christ's commission to his church, we see another example of God's unending faithfulness faithfulness to his own promise. The seed of Abraham has come, Christ, and through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through him, all the nations of the earth are to hear and are called upon to receive this blessing that God has sent in his Son to reconcile sinners to himself. He sends his people to all the nations, to all the ethnos of all the people on the planet. So what does this actually involve? What does it mean to go to make disciples? Well, certainly, as we hear Christ's words in verses 19 through 20, the twin foundations of baptism and teaching are going to be involved in this making of disciples. In one sense, you could say that baptism and teaching will characterize true discipleship. Where disciples are being made, you will find baptism and teaching the commands of Christ. Why? Well, because baptism is just the delineation of who is a follower of Christ. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant that marks out followers of Christ for who they are. The Acts 2 understanding of repent and be baptized. That's what it means to be a disciple, that you've been marked out. It's going to involve that. 
Because following Jesus involves turning away from sin and self and following after Christ, baptism belongs to those who repent and believe. So discipleship will be characterized by baptism. But he also says that it will be characterized by teaching. Discipleship means that we are learners or followers, then we must receive instruction. We can't follow after someone if we don't know their ways. And we can't truly be a disciple of someone if we're not heeding their instruction. And so discipleship in that sense will involve teaching, instruction. But let's press this further. How do we actually make disciples? Let's break it down further. Let's take the schematic and let's blow it up and look at the different parts. What is actually involved when we talk about making disciples? Does that just magically happen? The Apostle Paul was not only a tremendous evangelist, but he was highly invested in discipleship. Turn over to the book of Philippians. And what I want to do, to, in a sense, look at the expanded view of the schematic here in Matthew 28 is by looking to Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. This almost passing sentence that you would move on to in chapter 4, but is so helpful if you look and to listen at what Paul is saying to help us get clarity on what it means to make disciples. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul exhorts the church at Philippi and says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And what I find interesting is this is not only Paul's exhortation, but he tells them to actually practice these things. This is what I have done. Now go and do likewise. And if you flip the various elements of what the Philippians received from Paul, we have a pretty good understanding of what discipleship ought to look like. What I mean is this, learning, receiving, hearing, and seeing, if you flip those around, it equates to teaching, giving, speaking, and showing. That's a wonderfully helpful understanding of what it means to make disciples. And from this, we can then clarify on how we actually ought to go about helping others follow Jesus. First of all, we make disciples through teaching. At its core, discipleship must be about teaching. We teach with words. We teach with all the words that Jesus has given to us and have been explained Further, through the apostles' doctrine, we teach corporately. This is why we give ourselves to the preaching of God's word, expositionally seeking to understand the purpose and the point of the text, that we might understand the purpose and the point of what God calls us to. One of the greatest and one of the most solidifying ways that elders can help disciple a congregation And that a congregation can help disciple one another is when we gather under the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Corporately, that's how that works. But it also works interpersonally. Meaning, teaching occurs when we have spiritual and meaningful conversations with one another. 
This could be as informal as a lunch together, or it could be more organized of getting a few brothers and sisters together. What would it look like? And what would a church sound like, feel like, if we did not simply just, and we're not content with talking about sports or weather or parenting or politics, but also, in addition to, began to ask, what are you learning in your time in the scriptures? What did you hear from this exhortation in last Sunday's sermon that's challenging you or comforting you? What particular attribute of God are you in awe of or have you been learning about recently? What if conversations began to take on this element of teaching one another? How would that change the the ethos of a church? And please understand as we talk about this that discipleship is not only the concern for the immediate health of a particular church, but when a church takes seriously this call to teaching and specifically towards discipleship, it is saying, I am concerned about this church in the future. Think about it. A church to be faithful in regards to discipleship is to be concerned about the future health of this very congregation. Remember Paul's words to Timothy in chapter 2 Timothy 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What Paul's saying is, you've heard it, now you have it, and then you entrust it to others, and they in turn teach it to others. This right here means that God has seen fit to provide for the successive generations remaining in contact with Christ's teaching through his church. You hear it, you have it, then you entrust it to others that they might teach others. If you are concerned about the church of God in Placer County in 20, 50, 100, 500 years from now, you will be concerned with discipleship now. If you are concerned about the health of the church for your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, then you will be concerned about discipleship now. This is God's means to reach into the future to equip the church. It doesn't just magically happen and fall down from the heaven. God has given to us means, and we are that means that he would see fit to teach. We make disciples by teaching. But what else does Paul say there in Philippians 4? Well, he talks about this example of giving, what you've received from me. We make disciples through giving. And Paul most certainly modeled this to the church at Philippi. They were discipled by what they received from him. So what sort of things ought we be thinking about in regards to giving towards one another? Well, certainly, most obviously, our time. If our lives are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent, it will be very difficult to intentionally find time to disciple. If we're constantly running from the next thing to the next thing and responding to the next thing, discipleship will eventually be pushed out to the margins. And so we say, I want to give of my time. I want to carve out time in my week and my lunch and my breakfast, my weekends, to invest in this thing called discipleship. But not just time. We would think then about our resources. 
buying lunch, preparing food, giving away good books, is all going to be involved in this investment of giving that others might be enriched as we think about making disciples. Stinginess and discipleship do not play well together. One will eventually win, but they cannot coexist. Paul says, what you have heard and received from me. And this would, of course, be driving towards this word that we call hospitality. Seeking to open our homes, open our calendars, invite others into our lives, whatever your home and your life might look like. And it doesn't have to be a grand table spread with the most beautiful runner, with the most glorious feast. It is the act of receiving someone to yourself, whatever that might look like in your particular stage of life. And hospitality becomes a critical part to biblical discipleship because it's pretty hard to serve one another at arm's length. Some of you have probably read Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which is a tremendously helpful insight into what radically ordinary hospitality looks like. Her whole premise of the book is really this, like if we're going to take Matthew 28 seriously to go make disciples of all nations, then hospitality has to be on our radar. For her, this is the way she puts it, if within our gospel we are calling others to leave worldly community and their old ways and to follow after Jesus, the gospel must come with a house key meaning we must invite them into a whole nether community, which we know is a better community and a lasting community and a genuine community. But nonetheless, do not think that the world around us outside of the church does not have some form of relationship that they depend upon. And if we're calling them to say, leave and come, we must be those who are saying, come and be welcome. Come to my space. Come to what I can provide you. Come to how I can serve you. Come and listen. The gospel must come with a house key in that sense. So that means that in order for a church to be marked out by a culture of discipleship, there must be this willingness amongst us to give of ourselves for the good of the other. We make disciples by teaching. We make disciples by giving but interestingly, Paul clarifies this, and he says we also make disciples by speaking. For a culture of discipleship to take root, you and I must think that it is good and that it is normal to be speaking in to one another's lives. Remember the exhortation in Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's given to the church. It's put even more sharply and more precisely in Paul's epistle to the, first, to the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He doesn't say, and we encourage you, pastors of the church, this is your job. He says, brothers, 
Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a Christian. You're speaking into the lives of one another. Is somebody idle? Admonish them. Are they weak? Encourage them. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a very helpful section. It's in the first 15 or 20 pages where he clarifies the message of the gospel and God's means to bring the gospel to us and God's wisdom and how he does this. Listen to what he says. The Christian lives wholly by the truth of God's word in Jesus Christ. If somebody asked him, where is your salvation and righteousness? He can never point to himself, but he points to the word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures him of salvation and righteousness, which every Christian would say amen to. But listen to where he then applies this. But God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a man, as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. And so that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. As such, God permits them to meet together and gives them community. Their fellowship is found solely upon Jesus Christ and this alien righteousness. All we can say, therefore, is this. The community of Christians, springing solely from the biblical and reformation message of the justification of man through grace alone, this alone is the basis of the longing of Christians for one another. What he is blasting against is an isolated, individualistic idea of Christianity. God saves us by a righteousness external to ourselves, an alien righteousness. God puts that word in the mouth of a believer, and God commissions that believer to speak it to his fellow brothers and sisters, to remind them, to exhort them, to admonish them, to encourage them. That is the basis of genuine community, not just affinity for the same hobbies or political parties or stage of life, but that we are those who confess Jesus Christ the righteous, his righteousness becoming ours, assuring us of God's favor upon our lives and the endurance that we need to run the race with joy. This is the basis of genuine Christian community. We make disciples by speaking. But also, if we consider Paul's template here, we would say we would also make disciples by showing. Paul was not content with merely an information dump. He was not content with merely giving them piles and piles, reams upon reams, scrolls upon scrolls of information. He talked about example. What you've seen in me what has been modeled by me. We make disciples by showing. Now, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Discipleship must involve head knowledge. It must involve clarity. 
If we are muddle-headed in what God has called us to and who he is, we will do no good in speaking into one another's lives. But discipleship is not just speaking alone. Discipleship is not information alone. Discipleship is more than that because it is involves transformation. Not just the gathering of information, but the desire to see genuine transformation in the lives of one another. Ultimately, discipleship involves living out the whole Christian life before others. So we read together. We study together in order that we might help each other obey all the commands of Christ. Don't overlook that. That's in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey. At the end of all of this information is a life that is ordered according to the mind of Christ, a life that reflects the good design that God has given, saying, this is who I am. You are my image bearers. This is my will for your life. Discipleship has as its goal transformation, living out what it means to be an image bearer of God. How do we impact the lives of others? Spend time with them. This is not an extrovert thing. This is a Christian thing. Spending time may look different in different seasons and in different homes and in different situations, but isolation is not a possibility. Spend time with other Christians. Modeling requires being in the lives of one another. Because really, the how of discipleship, it's not that complicated. It's about doing life with other people as we all journey towards Christ. We make friends and then we help one another as we walk and follow after Christ. Helping others follow Jesus as we're following Jesus. That's the best definition of discipleship I have come across. Helping others follow Jesus as we ourselves are following after him. This is what I mean by discipling. And let me press that further and say, if you say that you are a Christian, but you are not helping someone in some way follow after Jesus, then I don't know what you mean in saying that you're a follower of Jesus. Because it is very hard to read Matthew 28, hear Christ's charge to go and make disciples, and say that that is distinct from what I am and what I do as a follower of Jesus. Because we hear Christ's clear call, discipleship is wound up in following after Christ. So we go in his authority, we go to make disciples, but lastly, what are we told? Back in Matthew 28, we go with Christ himself. Listen to the last words of verse 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't it wonderful that the last words of the Gospel of Matthew really tie together the first announcement of chapter 1? Do you remember the announcement in Matthew chapter 1? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The announcement of the Redeemer come into the world with the great title of Emmanuel. And what are Christ's words before his ascension here in Matthew 28? I'm Emmanuel. I am with you always till the end of the age. Literally, you could say, I am with you all of the days until the last day. This is not just a promise that Christ will be there on the distant horizon cheering us on like, you can go, you can go, I'll be waiting for you, come on. He is saying, no, I'll be with you. And all of this that I'm calling my church to, I will be with you, not just in the future, but each day as we live, he goes with us. Now, church, this is such great news and such a wonderful encouragement to us in our ordinary lives that we go with Christ. He's not distant, patiently waiting for us. We're united to him now, and he goes with us in this very charge that he gives to us. The disciples were not going to be left to serve God as well as they could based upon what they learned from Jesus' teaching. Like, here's a field manual. I think I've trained you well. Now, good luck, boys, storming the castle. I'll see you on the other side. He gives this great charge, this great commission, and says, let's go. I'm with you to the end of the days, to the end of the age. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The same risen Christ said, I will be with you church. So in a very real sense, the great commission is great because of the great companion that we have to walk with as we fulfill Christ's commands. What more do we need if we hear at the end of all of this, I will be with you. I will go forward. I will walk with you. And we compile all the other promises of the scriptures. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you orphans. I will send my spirit. All of this, the presence of God going with his people, is that not the great angst of all of scripture? Moses' prayer, I'm not going unless you go with us. Joshua's great concern and the great exhortation given to Joshua. Is that not always the concern of God's people? Read through the Psalms. God, do not abandon us because if people hear that we are your people and you've abandoned us, your glory will be brought into shame. If you do not go with us and hear what does Christ emphasize again, I will be with you to the end of the age. What we must see then in tying all of this together is that the Bible does not present discipleship as an option. It's not an optional subset of some form of Christianity. If you have breath in your lungs, if you have blood pumping through your veins, you are a disciple. To be a human is to be a disciple. Go back to the garden. God did not give to Adam and Eve two valid options to choose from. Follow me or follow self. He gave a very explicit option. 
You will follow me. And if you don't, if you follow yourself, if you listen to the voice of the serpent, if you choose to reject my commands, death, separation, being cut off. The reality is that we are all disciples. The question is of whom? Who is teaching us? Who are we receiving from? Who is modeling their life for us? Who is speaking into our lives, giving us the counsel that we seek? We are all being discipled. The Great Commission charges us to go and make disciples of Christ to every nation by every means possible. Brothers and sisters, God's means to reach the world is through his church. The way that we reach the world around us, the way that we reach our children, the way that we reach the farthest people group with the least amount of scripture in their hands is through his church. Discipleship is the means for evangelism, for church strengthening, church planting, and all that Christ calls us to as his people. This is why the gospel is such tremendously good news, because from birth, we are uninterested in this following Jesus thing. From birth, we are uninterested. We're actually opposed to following after Christ. We are dead in sin. We're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and we are blindly and gladly following the prince of the power of this air. But God, rich in mercy, pursues sinners, and he graciously makes sinners alive unto himself, reanimating them to be the image bearers that he intends them to be, to reflect the image and to hear and to receive and to obey as, as he intends. Christ has come to liberate us from the bondage of Satan, from the guilt of sin, and from the ruin of, of its corruption. In Christ, it stands this great promise of, of new life, the promise of new habits, the promise of new desires to be a legitimate new creation. That is what is held out and proclaimed and accomplished in Christ. All of this is true because of the fact that Christ has dealt with the deepest issue that plagues us all. Our sin. And the corruption of our sin. So what this means is this command to go and make disciples. It's not a burdensome command. For those who've heard and received and have tasted it's the farthest thing from burdensome. It is a joyful response to what God has done for us. And so to hear Christ say, go and make disciples, go proclaim what you yourselves know and have experienced, that is the desire then of every true believer. He has made me his own. He makes sinners into saints. How could I not compel others, plead with them, announce to them, remind them, exhort them, that this is who God is. This is what he has done. And this is the means by which he's done it. If you're here this morning and you find yourself longing to be discipled, the church is God's means to achieve that. He's not left you. He hasn't somehow forgotten that the 21st century would be incredibly hard to disciple Christians in and we're just going to have to wait till he returns. 
If you long to be discipled, Christ has provided for you and bringing you into his body, his church. And if you find yourself longing for a fruitful and supernatural spiritual body, discipleship is God's means to achieve that. The wisdom of God given to us to reach the world, to strengthen the church, it's the same thing. Go and make disciples as we turn towards one another and as we live our lives. And God sends us into this particular day and age that we live in. He's saying, this is my means to not only call sinners into repentance, but to strengthen you and to fill this world with my glory. Go make disciples. So a church can then with all confidence and with great anticipation say, yes, let's make disciples. Let's do that together. Veritas Church, by God's grace and by his kind provision, that is my prayer. Regardless of what comes in decades to come, the one thing that could be said of this body is we make disciples. So may God, by his spirit, cause the very words of God to make it so among us. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we rejoice to hear that all authority is yours, that you've not left us to ourselves and our own wisdom and our own might, our own finances, resources, that, Lord, you have given to us your spirit, that you go with us, that you have commissioned us to something that you yourself will accomplish. And in your great wisdom and great mercy, Lord, you choose to use means that you've taken upon yourself to commission us and charge us to go. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the wonderful and joyful call that you've given to us, that you would refresh us in the announcement and the hearing of what you do to reconcile sinners to yourself. And Lord, that you would give to us a greater capacity and a greater desire to help others follow Jesus as we ourselves seek to follow him. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would be well taught, that we would receive all that you've given to us in the counsel of your word. We ask specifically that we would invest in the lives of one another, spending time and resources, sacrificially and patiently caring for one another. Lord, we pray that you would bring your spirit and that you would sustain us by your spirit, that this might bear good fruit, that it might grow up and bear 30, 60, 100-fold, that Christ, you might make yourself known that the glorious gospel might be heard and received, that lives would be transformed, that homes and churches would be strengthened, more churches would be planted, and that, Lord, you would do this with great intensity until you take us home or until you come for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.